Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And I cannot tell you how delightful it is to be back speaking to you on the podcast again after what I can only describe as a rather tricky winter. Simon, I don't know how things have been up north, but down south in our emergency department, we have been having a heck of a time. How have you been getting on? It's been a bit grim up north, to be honest. I mean, we knew that already, but this winter does feel different to me. It feels harder. I think it does. I think the emergency departments in the UK, we've always had problems over winter, but it has felt to be a little bit more relentless this year. Firstly, we didn't really have that much of a summer. It didn't calm down that much over the summer. But over the winter, it was day in, day out. And we got some really interesting stats from our department that showed that in terms of consecutive days, when we were really over the line and really pushing and really quite scared sometimes about the the patient care and the patient numbers, we've never had such runs of days like that before. So, yeah, it was tough. I don't mind admitting on the podcast that I've been through stages being utterly exhausted. I really have. It's been a real struggle. And actually, only just in the last couple of weeks has it felt like we can breathe again, a bit of space to think about stuff rather than just getting to work and surviving. And I know that actually, we may be not out of winter quite yet. There's been some bad weather recently. But uh, hopefully, this is the beginning of us all being able to just take a few moments to keep going, improve back to what we want to do, education, good health care, looking after ourselves, looking after patients, rather than just trying to swim in an ever-increasing tide of patients and stuff to do. Having said that, we've actually done some amazing things over the winter. We've done some incredible educational events. We've had some really good clinical work. And I would say that I was speaking to some friends from around the world fairly recently. And one of the things that we're never short of are incredibly interesting and challenging and difficult cases. And as an emergency physician who's interested in resuscitation, who's interested in evidence-based medicine, that respect, in that respect, this winter has been incredible. We've done some amazing things. And that is one thing I think we can be really proud of, that even when we've had, well, at some points we've been up to 300% of our normal capacity in majors. Bear in mind, that's a 20-bedded area, so you can do the maths on how many patients we've had in there. We've managed to keep patients safe. We've managed to keep health care and the, we've managed to keep the standard of care high. Our actual level of complaints hasn't been any greater than normal. And we've actually had more compliments than we usually get. So we're doing something right. It's just a case of managing to look after ourselves while we're looking after all of these patients as well. And I think some of the work that we've done here and some of the work that we've done in the departments to try and keep people on track has probably helped that. The, the patient thing is interesting. I think the public increasingly understand the pressures in the system now. And I think they are not necessarily tolerant because they shouldn't be tolerant of, of some of the challenges that we have, but they're at least more understanding. And we've seen lots of political activity over the winter. We've seen clinical leads right into the prime minister. We've seen more and more of this on the front pages. It is actually a bit of a relief to see emergency medicine no longer occupying the front pages of our newspapers. I am slightly disappointed as a resident of Salisbury that it is now all about a nerve agent attack in my lovely home city. And can I just put out a little plea there, wherever you are in the world, Salisbury is safe. It's gorgeous. Come and visit us. People seem to have stopped, but they've even made parking free now. So there's always a a bright uh, thing on the horizon, but come and see us. Um, But at least that has taken the place of A&E crowded corridors on the front page of the newspaper, which is one upside, I guess. Indeed. And there's so many good things to look for coming up in this year. We've got loads of great stuff coming up over the summer. We've got some fantastic stuff coming up in October, which I think we need to tell people about. I think it probably is about time on the podcast to mention this big thing that we've been working on rather quietly over the last couple of months, but just announced recently, which is that St. Emlyn's is going to go live. 
time to come out from behind the microphones and away from our keyboards and our blogs and podcasts and present something in real life. So Tuesday, the 9th of October in Manchester, St. Emlyn's Live, a one day conference. We're planning some really good stuff, hugely cost effective. Sam, you're at the forefront of the program. There's some great stuff on there, isn't there? Yeah, we've got some really interesting speakers from around the world. We've got Claire Richmond uh, from Sydney Hems. We've got Natalie May, of course, who you know from the podcast before, also working out in uh, Sydney on the helicopter, but also doing neonatal and paediatric retrieval. Some really great talks from them as keynotes. We've also got Salim Razi coming across from the US. We've got Kat Evans coming from South Africa and a whole bunch of other people who we're going to announce in the next few weeks. It is going to be a lineup which I think you'll struggle to see in a lot of conferences on a one day at this price. And we've really tried to make this one of those conferences which will be interactive. It'll be everything that we aim for in St. Emlyn's, but live. So if you enjoy St. Emlyn's, if you've been listening to the podcast for a bit now, reading the blogs, hopefully this will be exactly what you need from a day of education. So the price for consultants is £150 and there's discounts for trainees, registrars, doctors in training, allied health professionals, nurses and medical students too. So we'd love to see you all there. Get booking now. It's not a big venue, so it will sell out, we hope, pretty quickly. So get in there now and get the tickets. It's all available online and you can see a recent blog post from Simon explaining more and how to get your ticket. And if you're really interested, you can come along to the teaching course, which is on the 10th and the 11th of October, so directly after the conference. And that's going to be like the teaching course you may have seen advertised and done all across the world, recently just done one in Cape Town. And that is a really incredible course which looks at how people teach and learn. There's loads of medical education stuff out there that tells people about theories and stuff like that. It's not really practical. It doesn't actually help you be a better educator. This is a course which is directly aimed at you as a clinician, as a clinician educator, being better at your job. And everybody who's come on those courses, everybody who's taught on those courses has come away with a completely different way of understanding what works, what doesn't work and how to improve from a personal point of view. Incredibly good course. So Simon, I hope that we're renowned on St. Emlyn's for not having too much banter. We have bantered a little bit there about what we've been up to and what's coming up, but let's get into some clinical medicine. Now we like to try and review our blog posts on the podcast and we haven't done any of this since the beginning of the year. So let's start and just have a chat about some of the posts we had in January because there was some really good stuff a few months ago, but worth going over again now. So the first one I wanted to bring to people's attention is the one that we did on devastating brain injury. Now, we did do a separate podcast on this, so I'm not going to spend a huge amount of that time talking about it here. But in essence, I've had problems in the past. I'm sure you have had too. When you see people who come in who've either had a devastating traumatic injury or a really severe subarachnoid bleed, and there's a decision about whether or not that patient is going to survive firstly and whether or not they're going to have a good neurological output so i've seen some interesting decisions made if you go back years and years and years where people have pulled out of treating these patients at a relatively early stage i think because the scan looks terrible and what this blog does is it discusses the latest guidance about what we should be doing with that group of patients in summary we shouldn't be making precipitous decisions about how well patients do on the basis of a CT scan in the recess room. There's plenty of evidence now that a small number of patients, even when the scan looks terrible, can have a very, very positive result. So how long you keep them for on the ITU, how long you look after them before you prognosticate is a debate. There will be times when the patient's got terrible comorbidities and you, and you withdraw early. 
But in many cases, you're looking at least 24, 48, even 72 hours before we should be making a decision. So what this means for us as clinicians in the ED is if somebody comes down and go, no, that's terrible, just pull the tube and let them pass away. We need to be challenging that and saying, have you seen this recent guidance? Do you understand what it means? And maybe that's not the right thing to do. I am incredibly lucky to work in a hospital with a dedicated neurointensive care unit and a very forward thinking set of clinicians. So it is a long time since we've pulled a tube in the ED recess room because for nothing else, these patients' families deserve a decent amount of end of life care and they deserve to be looked after just in the way that any other patient would. So at my place, we do transfer these patients to neurointensive care. They also have a very proactive program for organ donation, but all of that does give time for this thing, these clinical outcomes to make themselves more obvious than you might see on the scan at first. I realise that's not the situation for many people, but perhaps that's a, something to aim for. The idea that care should continue, we're still looking after a patient, whatever the scan shows, and there will be some patients who will surprise us, and we know that from outcomes from cardiac arrest and other things too. This is a really tricky thing because ITU is one of those specialties which does seem to be based on its capacity to look after the patient. How many times have you heard the phrase, oh, well, we've got no beds anyway? Well, hopefully we're moving to a time where care doesn't depend on resource and capacity. It depends on whether it's the right thing to do. That's a huge challenge in our national health service, but something we've got to aim for and I think be advocates for. I agree. And I think there is a difference there working in a hospital that has neurocritical care on site versus if you're in a peripheral hospital who doesn't have high, that kind of intensive care there and you're having those conversations over the phone that also adds an additional level of complexity makes these decisions difficult and that's why i think having a guideline that's published with the neurosurgeons on board mark wilson who we know well of course on the podcast and um, the intensive care society and a whole bunch of other people have agreed this so if you deal with these patients i really think you should have a look at it a really difficult topic to start the year with uh, that one of we never like patients dying. We don't like seeing people suffering and having these devastating injuries. But one that's important to think about. The next post we had was one from Janos talking about dizzy patients and whether you can discharge patients safely from the emergency department. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We've had um, over the years difficulty with a group of patients who come in complaining of dizziness or vertigo. Of course, there's a difference and you need to understand what the difference is. Read the blog. But are they just got something like a vestibular neuritis, a viral infection of the ear, are they just a bit wobbly because they're taking too many antihypertensives and they get a bit dizzy when they stand up? Or are you looking at a central cause of dizziness straight vertigo? And the one that I often worry about missing, and I know that we miss, are posterior circulation strokes. And that can present as a vertigo. And it can be very difficult sometimes to differentiate between the two because you don't want to miss a stroke. You really don't. And I find this incredibly hard. And when you read the blog, there are certain things that Janos writes about, which honestly, I don't remember the last time I really knew this effectively. And I have to work harder at knowing this. You know, is there a central pattern of nystagmus? For me, is are their eyes flickering? I need to be better at this. But this is why there are specialist neurologists who do this stuff all the time. Neurology is a dark art, isn't it? And it's a really tricky thing to do. But hopefully the blog does help those of us with a sort of more simple view of neurology to understand some of this stuff. Yeah, I think there are some tests which you can take from the neurologist and which are entirely applicable for use in the ED. So things like the HINTS test, um, which people will have read about, the, the videos on YouTube, and we've linked some of the videos onto the blog about how to do this, can give you a about whether you've got central causes or whether you've got peripheral causes and whether or not you might be looking at a stroke. And that's really important from the patient perspective 
but it also helps you have that conversation with your neurologist if they're not in the room with you if you're picking up the phone and speaking to people you can have a sensible conversation with them and it's a reasonable discussion which can then lead to improved care for the patient. But I know for a fact that we have missed posterior strokes. And when you go back and you have a look at it, it's because we've not done the right tests. The tests are not difficult. Go and have a look on the blood site, have a look at the hints idea, and see if you can get used to differentiating between central and peripheral causes of vertigo dizziness. And this may well be one of those times where you need to grab a friendly medical student and say, shall we do a teaching <laughs> session? Why don't you just run me through what you're going to practice for your OSCE? And uh, let's have a look at that and see how you're getting on. And then you may learn a couple of things. There's nothing I enjoy more than learning from my junior colleagues. They know so much more than me about so many things. Yeah. And I think this is a really good example of where it's absolutely fine to see the patient, to then leave, go and have a look at something on YouTube or on the St. Emlyn's blog revise, revise again, then go back and have another look at the patients. And I think that's one of the ways which we're increasingly practicing now is we know we know we need to do something about this, but we can't remember it exactly. Let's go get a bit of additional information off FOMED or the internet or Professor Google or Dr. Wikipedia. It's it's fine. I don't think we should be ashamed of it at all. I have a, a certain limited amount of memory to remember the stuff I need to remember. I got brainstem reflexes that I use for resuscitation, and I hope that I can do those without looking anything up. But there are certain things that I do infrequently, not that often, and we mustn't be embarrassed about saying, do you know what, I'm just going to go and double check that. Well, you don't even need to admit it, do you? Just say, oh, just go and check your blood test results. That's my favourite. Just check your blood tests and then quickly on the computer, have a look, double check, you know what you're doing. Oh, I just thought I'd add this little test in. Do you mind? The patient never minds. They don't really mind at all. In fact, I'm sure they expect us to be able to find all these things and do all these things anyway. So I don't think it's anything to worry about. No, and you probably heard my theory before that when we were growing up and being doctors and medical students, we had to remember everything. We were like the library. And now we don't. We don't have to remember everything. We need to know where it is and how to find it. So we're no longer the library, the librarian. And there's always been this argument I think is incredibly strong that when you have a medical exam, I can't see why you can't take your mobile phone in with you. Uh, or you're not allowed to take a reference book in, or why we still have to learn lists of causes for things that are more obscure. It just seems nonsensical to me. It's a rite of passage. It's not something I do on the shop floor, but I'm luckily, I guess, not a person writing exams. So that's not something I'm going to influence right now, but we should be examining in the way that we're going to practice, shouldn't we? That's what we're trying to do. Make sure people are fit for the job we want them to do, not to pass some tests just to jump through some hoops, but perhaps that's a soapbox I should get off for the time being. The next post we had after this one was Natalie Mays on reflection. Nat's written some amazing stuff on the blog recently, and I would point you towards 101 things she learned from her time at Sydney Hems, which is actually a book more than a blog. But go and have a, a read of this. But Natalie's incredibly thoughtful, and I know we think a lot about thinking. In fact, it's one of our, well, we describe it as pillars of St. Emlyn's. How do we think about thinking? Because until you know how you think, I don't think you know how to start moving forward as a clinician. This is a really interesting post around reflection, which at the moment in the UK is a really hot topic. We all know about the case in Leicester where a junior doctor was, well, initially charged and convicted of manslaughter and then subsequently struck off by the GMC. And part of that process, it's a little unclear, but part of that process was probably influenced by some of the reflections and some of the comments she made afterwards. So We've had this real kickback against reflection and people talking about the fact that we shouldn't do it, we shouldn't put it in our portfolios. If we do do it, it should be completely factual um, and not really say what we've learned from it in case we get accused of something in the future. And although Nat doesn't really talk about that case in any detail, what's in this post is 
this idea that we can't stop reflecting because it's such a powerful tool for lifelong learning. And we need to think hard about how we do it. Dave Jones, also known as Welsh Gas Doc, he brought out on Twitter, he's very thoughtful. I, I love his comments, actually. He's definitely worth following if you don't follow him already. But he talks about the fact that for many people, reflection has become a tick box exercise to get through their annual review, EPs, as they're called in the UK. And that's awful. If we can't stop and think about what we've done, if we can't stop and think about how we might do things differently or how we can improve, we're never going to improve. Uh, what's the quote? Is it something, if you can't be clever in retrospect, you can never be clever? The thing about reflection that I find a bit confusing is, is that people do it all the time. It's just become a thing. When we were training, I don't remember ever being asked to reflect formally about anything, but I certainly didn't not think about stuff. I think about stuff all the time. I can't stop myself thinking about things some of the time. My, my problem is not that I reflect, it's that I need to stop reflecting. You come away from work and you're driving home and it's a good number of songs on Radio 2 before you stop worrying about the case that you saw or thinking whether you could have done it better. And actually, for me, it's about encouraging clinicians, anyone who works in healthcare, to, to think about how they practice. Now, for some people, that involves writing it down. I'm more thoughtful. I don't write that much. But we've been writing diaries as human beings for years. I remember my mum used to keep a diary every night saying what her day had been like. That's what we're talking about, really. Reflection is just human nature. It's being thoughtful. And to be punished for that, I think, is is not helpful. The details of the Leicester case, I think, are tricky and probably nothing that we need to go into right now. But I don't want people to stop thinking. And there are other ways to do it if they're worried that others might read what they've written down. But please don't stop reflecting. It's a way that you increase your self-awareness and prove your own practice beyond all belief, much more than in a teaching session, or dare I say, by listening to a podcast. So Nat's put a, a whole bunch of ideas on there about how you do this in practice and why it's important for your long learning. I think in summary, what I really got out of that post was the fact that reflection, we do all the time, yes, but if you can do it with a purpose and if you can do it with a little bit of structure, it really can dramatically change and accelerate your progress as a clinical learner. And I think that's something that has really come out from her time in Sydney Hems, where they do a lot of this, and they've got a worldwide reputation for doing so. If you're worried about what's happened in the UK with particular cases, and you're unsure about your reflection, I'd strongly recommend you read this because it may reinvigorate your understanding of why we need to do this pretty much forever. The last post that we had in January was one about the adrenal trial. Now, you'll remember our four pillars at St. Emily's, which we'll cover in the conference in distinct chunks, clinical medicine, evidence-based medicine and practice, well-being, and then that thing about how we think. Well, this is that evidence-based practice thing. So the adrenal trial, fairly big trial. Uh, lots came out about it, but it was good to have a piece on the blog post. So this is a post by Dan Horner, who's our resident intensivist, is also the Professor of Emergency Medicine for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Top chap, trained with us in Manchester, of course. And he's reviewed a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which has answered, we think, the question about whether or not you should give steroids to patients who are in septic shock. Now, this is more of an intensive care question than the emergency department, because it doesn't sound as if it's something that we're going to be giving in the ED. But this has been knocking around for years. Only pretty much steroids have been knocking around for everything, haven't they? I mean, haven't we had tried steroids for just about every condition known to man at some point? I do think we give steroids quite often, and it's something you often hear patients having it out in general practice as well they do seem to make you feel a bit better uh, with a couple of wacky dreams as a side effect now the other thing to mention about dan and the adrenal trial itself this was a uh, incredibly forward thinking 
on behalf of the researchers. This was presented at the Crit Critical Care Reviews meeting in Northern Ireland. An excellent conference that's put together by Rob McSweeney. And you have to say, this is something that's come out of the foam med movement over the last five years. Rob's been at SMAC. He's been doing the critical care reviews now for some time. And this was a massive, multinational, internationally interesting trial that was promoted at a conference organised by Rob with the researchers there to answer all online, all put online with video streaming. And so for all of those naysayers that FOMED and online learning can't be evidence-based, this is perhaps the final nail in their cynical coffin, whereby, of course, it helps. We can get information out there quickly. And I doubt very much that it's going to take the traditional 14 to 17 years for knowledge translation about this particular trial. So what do they find in this? Well, the bottom line is it doesn't seem to make a huge amount of difference in terms of mortality, whether you give steroids or you don't. And so the headline figure is there is no difference. When you delve into it a little bit more detail, then you do find some differences in some of their secondary outcomes around things like vasopressor use, about days on ICU. And so what we thought was going to be the absolute definitive trial, steroids make no difference, has now ended up in a debate about whether such things as proxy outcomes are important. And they might be, you know, you might say that a couple of extra bed days lost on the ICU is bad, and it probably is because it's a resource limited environment. But on the other hand, Maybe those decisions were influenced by the fact that the blood pressure was different because of the steroids, but it didn't really make any difference to the outcome. I'm a little bit perplexed. I guess it tells me that I don't really care whether they give steroids or not. It doesn't seem to make a lot of difference. But I know that there are some very strong views still out there. But isn't this a bit about why medicine is so fascinating? We do massive trials and still we don't know the answer. The human being is a complex machine that doesn't respond in a uniform way. And for some things, we may not never know the answer. And quite frankly, for some of the treatments we obsess over giving, there may not be a particular benefit. And for many patients, what they really need is decent genetics and good supportive care. And those are the things that are more likely to get them through. But this is the thing, we're always learning, we're always looking for answers, but we'll rarely find the definitive solution to some of these most tricky problems. But that's what makes this all so fascinating, isn't it? It does, and great trial. Well-designed, very keen on sharing it in a broader church as possible. So definitely worth a read on the blog. And if you're interested in intensive care, you should be discussing this. I mean, you, this should be in the journal clubs. This should be a conversation. And of course, Dan will be at the St. Emlyn's Live in October talking at the conference. And we can't wait to have his critical care nous with us, offering those that different point of view that he gets from being an ICU clinician. So Simon, that's uh, many of the posts from January covered. Were there any that we've missed out that you wanted to give a special mention to? Yeah, there's a few more on the blog in January, which please go and have a look at. The one that I would particularly mention, just because I had such an amazing time with some incredibly exciting people, is the Bedesim Conference. So this is the Belgian Society of Emergency and Disaster Medicine, who I was, were kind enough to invite me over to Belgium earlier this year to talk on clinical decision making. But... We've talked about clinical decision making before on the blog. You can go and have a look at that. What I was inspired by is this remarkable group of young emergency physicians who are building a specialty in Belgium. And I can't tell you how welcoming they were. And I can't tell you how much they're doing. They did some amazing simulations. They had some fantastic speakers. Just the enthusiasm and just seeing a specialty in its early years developing led by 
wonderful people was great. So thank you so much for the invite. And in particular to Yoka, who really looked after us over there. It was great. We are a young specialty and that is part of the excitement, isn't it? We're always learning and we're new. We're, we're happy to listen to other people's points of view, but we'll give our own as well. And it's great to see that spreading across Europe and across the world, really. Emergency medicine is without doubt a growth specialty. No one's ever going to say that they don't need an emergency physician, I don't think. We're always going to be necessary and there's always more to learn. So Simon, that's pretty much January covered. Most of the posts that we had in that month, we still need to catch up with February and March now that we've had a bit of breathing space after the winter. So we'll be back very soon with the St. Emily's podcast to give you uh, highlights of those. Of course, there'll be more posts coming up. Please do book for the St. Emily's live conference. Keep up to date with what we're doing on the blog site, Twitter, all of that business. It's all back on the road. And here's to a nice spring ahead and enjoying what sunshine we may get in this green and pleasant land.